Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ plus community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. And BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. And someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another Pride Connection. I am your host this evening, Anthony Corona. And over the past couple of weeks, you guys have had the opportunity to hear some great voices from Blind Pride International. As always, if you have a topic, a concern, or you would like to bring something to our attention, our membership uh, email is membership at blindlgbt. Pride.org. This evening, we are going to revisit a conversation that we had a few weeks ago. So I am actually going to turn it back over to one of our bright, leading, younger, incredibly potent voices of BPI, Sarah Chung. Thanks, Anthony. Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Chung. I use she and they pronouns. And this episode, we are going to focus on Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. But with that being said, I just want to note, uh, we're going to have a brief disclaimer. Uh, I just wanted to say that we may touch on topics that may be sensitive to some listeners. Um, These may include but are not limited to xenophobia, racism, ableism, homophobia, pretty much any ism, um, and possible descriptions of violence, etc. In our first conversation in March, uh, we had touched on a very sensitive topic. It pretty much happened right after the senseless violence that happened in Atlanta. Sorry, I'm getting kind of I'm, I'm even getting kind of shaky about it, just just mentioning it. But I thought that a continuation of that conversation, along with highlighting Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, was a critical thing to do. This time around, we are joined by Minha Misokwak and Tyann Wilmoth to further our conversation. Can we please go around and do a round of introductions? Uh, Miso, if you don't mind going first, please tell us your name, preferred pronouns, and where you're from, and anything else you'd like to share. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Miso Park. Um, I use she, her, her pronouns. Um, thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm currently based in the greater Boston area, and I identify as a 1.5 generation Korean American. Yeah, as you know, May is an Asian American Pacific Islander heritage month. And honestly, I think just kind of living as a Korean American on a daily basis is something that like, I don't actively think about, but it's always in my mind. So Yeah, just really looking forward to having this conversation with you all. Thanks so much. Min, would you like to go next? Hi, everybody. My name is Min Ha, and um, I use she, her, her pronouns. And uh, I'm also based in the greater Boston area. Really happy to be here and have continue to have this conversation with all of you to celebrate my heritage as an Asian American, but mostly as a Vietnamese person. I identify as Vietnamese. My 
family emigrated from Vietnam when I was eight, and I'm pretty much Americanized and Westernized now, but I still feel like Vietnamese is a big part of my identity and kind of moving through the world as a Vietnamese woman and a Vietnamese woman who is also blind has kind of really cemented my place in the U.S. culture, and I'm looking forward to unpacking that with all of you. Thank you so much. And we are also joined by Tyann, who uh, we spoke with last episode. Uh, Tyann, would you like to reintroduce yourself? Okay, I'm Tyann Wilmeth. I live in Portland, Oregon, and my pronouns are she, her, her. And um, I identify as Asian American, specifically Korean. I was adopted when I was two. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much. With that being said, there's a great group of people here. And now we're going to just jump into a little bit of history here. I'm admittedly not very well versed in in AAPI history. It wasn't really taught a lot in my school system growing up, but I know that there are a couple of folks here who might be able to shed some light on that. Uh, Misa, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I also want to just give a disclaimer that by no means I'm an expert. And um, I also want to echo Sarah's point that, you know, AAPI history and honestly, any history that is not um, centered on this, you know, white dominant narrative that is usually taught in U.S. schools. You know, I think there is a lot of uh, lack um, in terms of learning your own um, background, unless, you know, you're a white person. And so the stuff that I'm going to just briefly touch on is very scratching on the, on the surface. And, you know, it's something that I've just learned in college and beyond um, just in my own time. And um, yeah, so I'll just give that disclaimer. So I think like the migration of Asian identifying folks to the U.S., I think it starts in like 1700s or one uh, not. Um, but I think uh, the major event is during the like 1800s when Chinese uh, male workers, uh, really uh, strong and for the lack of better terms, able-bodied folks are um, recruited for the gold rush in California and so they come over to the states. Um, they're, you know, initially promised that, you know, they'll work and uh, receive fair compensation and whatnot. But of course, you know, when they come, leaving their families behind, essentially, to come to work in the states, they face discrimination of um, various kinds, um, such as having to pay foreigners tax. And a little bit moving forward after the gold rush time, the U.S. Continental Railroad was essentially built by the demographics of people, uh, Chinese men, uh, male workers, and who, you know, had to suffer through really hard conditions of labor. And many of them died um, because this work involves having to, you know, mine through the mountains. And, you know, once sometimes, you know, people were literally killed because they, you know, they were blown up what was supposed to just blow up through the mountains. Um, but, you know, and this is something I picked up from the PBS documentary series on Asian Americans. And what stood out to me was that in the celebration photograph of building of the Continental Rail- Railroad, the documentary explains that there was no single Asian descent person pictured in that 
photograph, even the people who actually built the railroad were all Asian men.、Um, and I think there are just many, many instances of、um, Asian folks coming to the States and、uh, facing different kinds of discrimination,、um, not only just the labor condition, but also when it comes to you know, having,、uh, having to go to separate school and、um, et cetera. And, Of course, the major thing that gets talked about if we even talk about Asian American history is the Chinese Exclusion Act.、Um, that was the first legislation that banned a people group coming to the state solely based on their race, you know, origin. So that's the kind of the, I think, what gets talked a lot about in the early part of Asian American history. And、um, I'll pass it off to、uh, Min, who、um, will talk a little more about. You know, little later times in the history. Thanks, Miso. That was great. To continue that narrative with the Chinese Exclusionary Act, moving forward from that, Chinese people and Japanese people were banned from immigrating to the US for a really long time. And it kind of had this history of the US needing laborers for different k i n d of jobs. So they'll lift certain restrictions on immigration beyond kind of those. The scope of employment and needing laborers. Many people in the US did not want Asian peoples to immigrate to the US because they felt that they were taking away jobs from white workers. I think something that we are still hearing today, not from Asian people, but from Latinx people who are coming to the US right now. So, you know, history repeating itself. Another big part of AAPI history, as many people know, is the Japanese internment camps in the 1940s during World War II. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, President Franklin D. Roosevelt decreed that Japanese Americans and people of Japanese descent would be put into these internment camps because they felt that they were going to help their home country, even though. Most of the people forced into these camps were already US citizens. They were born in the US. They have never been to Japan. Many of them lost homes, businesses, and dealt with a lot of indignities in these internment camps. And, you know, it wasn't until, was it 1988 when Ronald Reagan you know, wrote an act to apologize for all the terrible things that、uh, Japanese. Interment people had to go through. And I think the restitution was $20,000 for every person who was in an internment camp. And so, moving on from that, this is getting to an area I'm pretty interested in is, you know, migration of Vietnamese people to the US after the Vietnam War. You might have heard of the boat people. So,、um, a lot of Vietnamese people or Vietnamese refugees fled to the US and other countries for asylum during the Vietnam War. And they did that in really horrific conditions, you know, stuffed into tiny boats where they fled across the ocean to seek a better life far from communist regime. And many of them settled in California and Texas, like the two biggest. Uh, Vietnamese populations. And then after 1975, with the fall of Saigon, you know, Vietnamese people started coming here more through immigration. And there were acts that were 
passed to assist people in coming here, you know, especially children of American soldiers. And so moving forward through that, there's with Lyndon B. Johnson actually wrote the Heart Seller Act into place um, in 1965, which lifted all restrictions on immigration based on race and ethnicity. I think that's why Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have been able to immigrate more to the U.S. um, over the past 30, 40 years. Thanks, Min. Uh, I think I'm going to change course a little bit here and kind of talk about our own histories, you know, our own personal histories. Uh, I think it's really critical to highlight that just because we all identify as Asian or uh, Asian American or Pacific Islander, it doesn't mean all of our stories are the same, right? So I want to continue this conversation by giving a little bit of my story and my family's story. Um, so my parents immigrated to the States in 1987, and um, I was born in 1989 in Illinois. Throughout growing up, there was really hardly, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, and um, there were hardly any other uh, Asians or Asian Americans or Pacific Islander folks, at least to my knowledge. So it was really hard for me to find a sense of identity, and uh, I really had to find more of that as an adult. But I know growing up, I had gone to Korean school on Saturdays, so it, it was almost kind of like my weekend were set aside for meeting up with the Korean side of my identity. And then during the week, I would kind of step out of that role and into a more uh, predominantly white or assimilated role. And, and then where does blindness fit into all that, right? Like it's a lot to juggle as a kid. That's just a very, very brief history of mine. But I was curious about all of you that are willing to share in this conversation. So with that being said, Tyanne, would you like to start us off and tell us a little bit about your own history? All right. Um, I was born in South Korea and I was abandoned on the streets when I was 18 months. And they diagnosed me with my blindness-related issues, and uh, so I was put into a foster home and was adopted when I was two and came to the States in 1987 on January 15th and met my new family, who was white. So I went to public school in a predominantly white area. Blindness was the first thing that people pointed out to me. Then it was the fact that I was Asian. And growing up, I didn't know any better because my family had adopted uh, some African-American girls into the family. So I didn't really understand the whole crimes against or the hate toward people of color, including Asians, until I became an adult. I didn't get any of the Asian culture as a kid. So I'm still learning. Great. Thank you so much. Misa, would you like to go next? Sure. Yeah. So I was also born in South Korea. Um, I've been blind since birth. Uh, I grew up in Korea until I was 13. I went to a school for the blind for the most part of my education in South Korea. So felt pretty like I would say comfortable in both my blindness and being Korean. I'm being Korean because I was surrounded by Koreans growing up in Korea and didn't really know anything else. Right. And of course, um, being a blind person, in Korean communities like in Korea was something that I knew that I was different from everyone but 
you know, in retrospect, I can say like it was almost like a sense of security in my blindness, right? Because I'm surrounded by blind peers and had um, some blind teachers as well. And um, the Asian American piece comes into my life um, when my family migrates to um, the US. Um, So I was in middle school and my father's work allowed us to come to the States. And the first uh, place that I lived was actually upstate New York um, and it was a very very white place in my middle school of about several hundred students I was the only Korean student and there were like Asian looking people that you could count in with your one hand like it was to the point where like you know, when my mom showed up to like a talent show or, you know, band concert or something, she was like, oh, I, I noticed one kid who looks like an Asian. Do you know like what, what kind of Asian they are? You know, it was just kind of this, you know, very culturally different place, um, especially coming out of Korean. I think at first I kind of just accepted it as a default, like, well, like I'm in America, like what do you expect, right? In high school, though, my um, father's work uh, moved us across the country to Southern California, where I went to high school and went to high school with a lot of peers of Asian descent. And most of them are, you know, children of immigrants who were born in America. And now looking back, I think high school and then going to college also in Los Angeles area, um, those times really kind of strengthened my identity as an Asian American person trying to bridge the two cultures and two places that are very different, but I'm product of both at this point. So I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I think the blindness, I think is definitely interwoven into this, my life story, because I I don't think my parents would have come to the States if I was not um, blind or disabled in any way. I kind of have a similar, similar story is there's, there's definitely a similarity there because my parents said that they stayed here in hopes of providing a better education and opportunity for, for my sister and myself. Lastly, Min, would you like to go ahead and share? Absolutely. So as I mentioned in my introduction, my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight. So I was actually born in Saigon. Um, I was sighted until I was seven. I became blind through a crime of violence back in Vietnam. And Sarah kind of touched on this where coming to the U.S. or staying in the U.S. for a better education, because that's exactly when my mom moved my family here, because she knew that there wasn't going to be any future for me back in Vietnam. People are talking Talking about like my mom would either have to work for the rest of her life to take care of me or you know I would end up on the streets begging you know we came here and we lived in California in um, Santa Ana you know if you are familiar with that area there's a section called Little Saigon just because there's so many Vietnamese people who live there so we were kind of still entrenched in our community and our culture and having that support but then my mom remarried and we moved to Massachusetts and that's where I grew up and I went to public school there and luckily you know the school that I went to was in a very diverse area so I had a lot of Asian friends I a lot of Hispanic black friends so you know to me being a personal color wasn't that big of a deal because there were other kids around me who looked like me who shared in my culture and it was really great and plus at home you know being an immigrant my mom didn't have a lot of opportunity 
use a lot of time to kind of learn English and really immerse herself in it. She worked two, three jobs sometimes. At home, I spoke Vietnamese. That was the only language that I could speak. So I don't want to say forced, but it allowed me to hang on to that language. And of course, at home, we ate Vietnamese food. And definitely our cuisine is a very important part of our culture. And so I grew up with that. And it wasn't until I went to college at a predominantly white school, as I think most colleges are, that it really became apparent to me that I was different. Not only because of my blindness, which I think Tayan touched on this, it's always the blindness that people notice first because it's so different. Also, the color of my skin and my heritage. You know, I remember one freshman roommate asking me not to <laughs> eat food um, in our room because it smelled bad and it was weird. Um, and it was food that my mom had made for me that gave me solace and comfort during a really difficult time of transition. And this white person basically telling me that it was bad for me to eat something like this. So little microaggressions like that, that I had never really experienced before growing up in my diverse middle and high school. And, you know, being in this environment really kind of showcased that, yeah, people still don't understand Asians or, you know, people of other cultures. Kind of something that I'm still trying to work through today, kind of assimilating my Vietnamese heritage, and also identifying as an American. That is really powerful, Min. Yeah. I can still <laughs> relate to that. You touched on food. Um, my mom was so passionate about packing lunches for me, and I couldn't, yep. you know, I was always so excited to eat my mom's food until someone made fun of me. And like, it was typically yep. a bully that made fun of me for blindness or my food, um, or just how close I was looking at something. All, all of that, all of your stories are so, so relatable to me. And I can, all the feels, yeah. <laughs> uh, so many feels. I have a question for all of you, and we can go in the same order again. But if you can say something to a younger version of yourself that was struggling, either with identity or with bullies or blindness, what would that be? I think that when I was growing up, I had a lot of struggle with like, who do I, who do I want people to see me as? Am I going to be able to grow into a person that I can be proud of later in life? Um, so I think it's really critical for us to highlight that. If you were to say something to a younger version of yourself or to a younger person who might be going through similar struggles, what would you say? Um, Tayan, if you'd like to go first and then we'll have Miso and then Nick. Uh, what I would tell my younger self is it's okay to uh, be proud of who you are, whether it's your blindness or your culture or, you know, your nationality, because that's one thing that I wasn't comfortable with was my blindness. I didn't want to walk with the cane like a lot of uh, low vision people that I know. And so... Just be proud of who you are. Excellent. Miso? I think what I would say to both my younger self and anyone, you know, younger, um, no matter who I identify, who you identify as, is that I think I think it's okay to struggle. And I think at the end of you know, this search and exploration, I think there is always something meaningful and beautiful that comes out of it. And I also want to say that I don't think that 
there is any like arrival point, so to speak. I think it's more of a continuation of journey. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I definitely identify with that. You know, um, I feel like a lot of conversations around um, assimilating your um, heritage, whether that's Asian or um, teen Latinx or whatever it is, the people have a, they want a destination point and you can't really have one. Um, And I feel like I'm always going to be learning and adapting my two identities um, all the time. And I think for me, for my piece of advice, um, I think it's taking the opportunities that your family, your parents, um, your community give you to um, experience your culture and your ethnic group you know because even though I had a lot of diversity a lot of people that look like me growing up I kind of also boxed against this expectation that I had to learn about my heritage that I had to celebrate it because you know as a teenager I wanted to be more American I wanted to show people that I belonged here in the U.S. that I had my own place here. So even though I ate the Vietnamese food at home and talked the language outside of that, um, I didn't do much with my community. And I I kind of regret that now. Like, I wish I had taken the opportunities to celebrate that more, you know, Vietnamese New Year or like Fall Harvest, all of those festivals that are so integral to my heritage. Thank you. Perfect segue. Um, I just want to add to this as well. I think for my younger self, I would ask myself to be patient. Anyone who is going through just finding yourself, you need a tremendous amount of patience. I knew that I wanted to grow up so fast. I was like, I want to know all the things. I want to know this, that, and the other thing. And I want to fit in. Um, but sometimes sometimes fitting in isn't everything. Um, so patience, take things at your own pace. Seek out the resources that are available. I remember growing up, I was like, who can I talk to about this? Everyone around me, I can't seem to relate to them. And it's so hard. So one day at a time is something that I still use to this day as an adult, one day at a time, one task at a time. Um, But uh, we're going to move onward with our conversation uh, throughout Heritage and and all the topics that we've discussed so far, um, I just want to briefly touch on like the model minority myth and how it has affected each of you. Personally, I've had to deal with it day in and day out. Achieving greatness, so to speak, you know, through my parents are like, you have to make sure that you're the best of the best, keep your head down, do all the things so that you can come off, uh, come up on top. Have any of you experienced this? And, and like, where were your expectations for yourself uh, versus like the expectations that others have put on you? Uh, Tyann, do you want to go first? Um, you know, everybody has always had higher expectations for me. And I pretty much have been kind of like, you know, I'm going to do what I can. And I don't like the fact that even in my own family, sometimes I have to prove that I can do stuff because of my disability. Um, I haven't had to do a lot with being Asian, but my disability is definitely one of those things. It's I don't 
I'm tired of proving to people around me that I can do whatever I set my mind to. You mean you can tie your shoes by yourself? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can you can match your blue jeans with you know with the right color shirt? How is that possible? <laughs> yeah. I can be a parent. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um Misa, would you like to go next? Yeah, I can go. So I just want to unpack like what model minority um, is and also just want to point out that this was a term that I didn't like I learned only in college. And I think that speaks to kind of this gap again, the thing that I um, alluded to earlier in the podcast. Um, yes, we are not, you know, teaching students about um, these concepts and um just narratives that are outside of the white dominant um, narrative. Um, so I think this idea of model minority is that, you know, Asian people are so great. They're like really high achieving people. And this idea that, you know, look at Asians, like making lots of money and doing great things, becoming doctors and lawyers. So like, there's no racism. They look at Asians. They can, you know, work hard and surpass this uh, racism. And of course, that's a myth. Um, but I think I just want to point out how, like, where this model minority, um, you know, came from. And I'm forgetting the person who coined this term. So please forgive me on, on that. And of course, this is a myth. And in and there are lots of layers to that, um, as in one, um, and just to point out few main things is that one Asian, you know, people group is very heterogeneous. Like when you say Asian, you know, you're, and, and also if you add on to the Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, we're talking about so, so many different groups of people who have, you know, similar, but very different immigration stories to the U S and, you know, different, um, different cultural backgrounds, different values, different norms, etc. Um, So I think even just grouping us, as one giant ginormous group, there's lots of problems with that. And, and even more, like when you lump these groups of people to being like, quote unquote, model minority, model minority. Um, And second is that, you know, you are this idea of like, Asian people are so smart, and Asian people are so hardworking, so polite, etc. Of course, those are positive um, traits. But these are kind of false expectations almost, right? Like you don't expect your white kids in school to be smart, polite, and all of those things in a, the way that Asian students are put into. So for example, like, I think there are lots of kind of pressures of like, oh, you're Asian, you must be so good at math and science. And it's great if you are, but not, of course, not everybody is. And so you know, there, there's this, again, this false idea that you're somehow great and that can be very, you know, that cause like being overlooked when you really need support and, you know, students feeling the pressure to always perform and be excellent. And that, of course, you know, um, negatively affects uh, mental health. Oh. One thing that I grapple a lot is, you know, the thing that Tayan talks about, like, as a blind person, I'm trying to fight off this low expectation. And at, yet the, at the same time, because I'm an Asian, like I'm also trying to make people realize I'm not some super, you know, super woman trying like doing everything right and well. So I think I always, you know, grapple with this like 
two seemingly different ideas that are nonetheless very, very much connected. I, I aim into that. I can so relate. Wow. Min? Thank you, Miso, for touching on those because I feel like this model minority myth has been used against Asians for so long. If you don't fit into that narrative of the model minority, people don't have the same view of you anymore. It's like they don't know how to wrap their heads around the fact that you are not a model minority. And I think you know, Asian women in particular were supposed to be meek and polite and not strong-willed, right? So when we are, it's people's minds kind of shatter a little bit. I kind of want to touch on this you know, paradox, I guess, between being Asian and being blind, because um, like others have mentioned, when you have a disability, they don't have really low expectations of you. And so if you want to make it in society and you want to prove that you are more than your disability, that you're just like everybody else, you have to work 10 times harder. And so that was me growing up. I knew I wanted more for myself than, than what other people expected of me because of my blindness. So I worked really hard in school. So you know, I could get into a good college and kind of follow that path of go to school, get a degree, get a great job, you know, make lots of money, get the capitalistic <laughs> um, expectations. <Amen>. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so kind of inadvertently, I fed into this model minority myth too, um, as an Asian person, because they're like, oh, men are so smart. Uh, she's Asian and she's really good at all these things. It wasn't until I, I got to college when I learned about modern minority. I was like, this is me, you know, and thinking about how unbeknownst to me, like living up to these expectations of the modern minority, but at the same time, pushing against that low expectations uh, that other people have on me because of my blindness it was just this really weird push and pull essentially of how do these two identities kind of intersect and how do I find my way beyond that and so like Niso kind of mentioned living up to people's expectations is really difficult and you know there's a lot of mental health issues that come along with this, a lot of su- suicidality, when people feel like they can't do what they're supposed to do, living up to family expectations. It's a really big issue in you know the Asian American community that is kind of a taboo topic. You know, mental health is a very taboo topic that you don't talk about. Yeah, Sarah, and I hope you don't mind if I hijack the conversation for a minute. Of course, everybody, go um, ahead. And I, I, I th- definitely think Pride Connection needs to come back with a series of mental health conversations um, for both the API, transgender. You know, I think we really need to touch on the lack of empathy and the lack of just services out there for, you know, for the various reasons that mental health services are needed. I think, Min, you know, and I think you all in a way touched on something that I really, um, you know, I want to grab the bullhorn, jump on top of the elephant and ride it right into the middle of the room. You know, we have some fabulous she, her uh, identifying 
um, women on this on this call. And so thank you, A, so much for, for being so brave and, and open to speak the way you're speaking. Um, the question that I'm really hoping that we can touch on too, because I think it's important for the ACB, you know, and those beyond um, listeners out there, there's kind of like a duality, you know, for Asian women, you're either one of two things, you know, you're either the, the math science nerd, um, you know, who's going to excel and, you know, takes the notes and shares it for, you know, all of their white girlfriends, you know, in the movie theme, or there's this sexualized version of, you know, Asian Pacific Islander women that's, that's pervasive out there. And I'm wondering from a personal standpoint, how those two perceptions have uh, affected and and shaped or you know or non-shaped your you know your journeys so far miso could you maybe start us off and then hit to min and tie then sarah i can attempt to answer that question you know i think um i think the atlanta incidents has really brought up to my consciousness how much um asian women are fetishized essentially and as one of my professors, you know, spoke in a recent event, like the fetishizing is not for people, it's for objects, right? So um, there's really kind of realizing, oh man, like this, you know, this is happening. And kind of thinking back to instances where, you know, I've experienced, you know, hypersexualization or just, um, just various instances of microaggression both ways right like the this one and the fetishizing and then this you know expectation of like yeah like you're the kind of nerdy smart like nice polite person and yeah just I think I don't know what to make of it other than to say like we need to stop this kind of way of thinking and encourage other people to you know stop this way of thinking I think I've also experienced both of those stereotypes or like being in schools like men is really good at math and science. And in reality, I'm actually not that good at math. I hate math. It and I don't get along very well, but I just I really tried hard in school so I could, you know, do well, mostly to make my mom happy. <laughs> I think you guys know what's that about. Um, angry Asian mom is not something you want to deal with. Um, you know, on the flip side of that, I've had so many dudes, uh, you know, blind or sighted tell me, it's like, oh, you're, you're so hot because you're Asian or you sound so hot. And, oh, you're Asian. You must be really beautiful. You must be really skinny. You must be blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I think women in general, we experience a lot of unwanted sexual attention. Um, it doesn't matter what race you are, but definitely for Asian women, we're, like I mentioned before, viewed as being really timid and, you know, some men really like that. And so, you know, hypersexualization is something we have to deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, something that has stuck with me for a really long time is, you know, the Brock Turner incident of, you know, he raped um, Chanel Miller. Um, this was a few years ago, and for the longest time, we didn't know her identity. And when she came out, um, you know, she's a woman of Asian descent. And a lot of our conversation or the conversation around that was, you know, he felt like he had the right to her body. And that's 
the case that a lot of Asian women experience in the U.S., uh, you know, sexual assaults and all of that. But I also wanted to talk about kind of the flip side of that, because when you're blind, people don't unsexualize you. They desexualize you, right? Because you're disabled. You're, You're not capable of... Being fantasizing, or, yep, yeah, being mm-hmm. um, thought about in that kind of way because that's just wrong. You know, I've experienced that too, where you know people uh, people on the streets will just randomly come up to me like, "How do you have sex? Like, I don't think you can have sex because you're blind." Um, different things like that. Yeah, I would counter back with, "How do you have sex? You can't possibly have sex if you're that stupid." <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that. Diane? Um, well, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Uh, you know, I have talked to some guys who are like, oh, yeah, my weakness is Asians or blondes. And I'm going, okay, those are two like total opposites. But then they're like, oh, well, if an Asian wants me to do something, I will. And it's like, okay, um, see ya. I don't want to deal with you only want to talk to me because I'm Asian. And then I've dealt with guys who are like, oh, you're pretty, but you're blind. So how can I date you? Gross. It's, uh, <laughs> it's really frustrating. I'm glad that uh, I've overcome that. But also, as far as like, you know, Asians being uh, you know, submissive, I'm totally not submissive quiet well work girl (laughs) um you know i am nice i can be not so nice if you uh get on my bad side but and then the whole stereotype of asians being smart and geeky okay i have to admit i kind of fit into that category i really like math and i really like science and i'm good at math so and i didn't realize like how stereotyped asians were until i became an adult i'm gonna segue from that uh tyanne i i always kind of feel like a walking like melting pot of experiences and people are like, Oh my gosh, you, since you're Asian, have you done X, Y, Z Asian things? And it is exhausting to constantly have to explain or justify an experience and not have people accept it as is. They're like, Oh, well that's stereotypical. I'm like, that's why does that matter to you? You know, like, Oh, it must be nice to have dinner, you know, like Korean food with your, is it always Korean food? I'm like, no, like it could be pizza one day or just, I think it's exhausting constantly having to walk this fine line of what is an Asian's, who are you supposed to be, right? Like who, if you're an Asian identifying person, what constitutes you as an Asian, for example, or what constitutes you as an American or what constitutes you as a woman? Or, you know, like there's all these constructs here that are constantly blending for me. And I'm just like, I'm a, I'm a person and I have experiences and they're different from your experiences and that should be fine. Like, why do I have to dive into every little facet of who I am just to feel like a human? So I don't think there, there is, for me, like, is there a this or that, this versus that? It's, it's not, I'm really tired of that conversation. 
a lot when I have it with some of my peers who have never like it's about sharing the experience, but I think it's also about validating that experience. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a really big reason why we're having this conversation today, because it's it's all dependent on on the individual. Right. Yeah, that's that's where I stand with that. Um, well, I think it's it's a way for people to other. Uh, others. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They want an excuse to prop up their belief systems, whether, you know, that's right or wrong. They want you to let them know that their way of thinking is correct. Right. And to make you feel different and like you don't. Or, or, or use you as a token. You yes. know, like yep. I can't tell yep. you how many times I've been tokenized as a token blind person or as a token Asian person or as a token yep. queer person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. That's a whole other conversation <laughs> that right. can be had. Okay, so we're going to move forward in the conversation um, about the harder part of this whole journey together <laughs> this week, um, the pandemic and how it's affecting folks. Uh, there has been new legislation that's out. I think it's HR. It's known as the COVID-19 uh, Hate Crimes Act, HR 1843. Um, and I think... All things considered, and Atlanta being the kind of the catalyst of, of this huge movement that is honestly, it, it's been a long time coming. Like it, people presume that I am a quiet human until they talk to me and they're like, oh, they are really opinionated. And I think it's, it's about time that we stood up and, and had a conversation. Um, according to Stop Asian Hate, hate crimes have skyrocketed like tremendously and like microaggressions and murder and all these things have been building and building and building and culminating. So what I'm wondering from, from each of you is who do you think this act will impact the most right now? We know that there's a lot of elder violence. There's a lot of hate crimes against other Asians, depending on where you are in the country, but it's not, it it hasn't been talked about enough. So can you share your thoughts on this new legislation and how it's been going for you during the pandemic? Miso, do you want to go first? Yeah. First of all, I think, this kind of COVID-19 and just the way Asians and Asian Americans have been talked about and targeted in the media and, you know, your real life, um, it really kind of woke me up for the lack of better words. Of course, I knew, you know, racism is bad and racism is really around. And But yeah, like I still distinctly remember this one time last year, 2020. So I happened to be get really um i was really sick one time just before we were like entering the lockdown phase um so you know like i went to urgent care and got dropped off at cbs you know picked up and at that point i was wearing n95 because urgent care made me wear it and they said you know you have to wear it until you get to your home um just as a safety measure and at that point nobody was really wearing masks and so here i was you know young blind asian person um and woman at that like walking around you know city streets uh with n95 on and i'm feeling very very unwell and you know i'm essentially walking alone and i i genuinely like felt like oh dang like if like will someone you know say something or will someone do something to me because I'm wearing N95 yeah so I just remember that experience so vividly that really made me realize like how you know problematic this whole racism is and yeah I don't know it was just really um 
experience that I don't think I'll be able to forget. And, you know, as we've been kind of, you know, hearing very anti-Asian sentiments in the media and just kind of grappling with that. And, you know, I think most recently after Atlanta happened, um, my mom is in working in Korea currently. And, you know, she and I were having conversation and she said, you know, you know, be careful when you go outside, you know, especially, you know, you as a blind person, if something happens, you're like even more, you know, vulnerable than other people. And, you know, like hearing that from your mother is not so great. Like, it's like, um, yeah, it was just really hard um, for the lack of better words. And I think I'm hopeful and feeling encouraged by just the ways in which many people have been supporting you know, AAPI community at large. And frankly, um, as somebody um, who kind of works in the policy sphere, I don't know if, you know, this legislation will actually have a tease, like how long it will it take to get implemented? And will, you know, every day, you know, your, you know, your grandma in the neighborhood, like, will they experience this, you know, effect of this legislation? I don't know, but I think the reason why I hopeful, feel hopeful is that it shows that people are actually caring and tr- trying to do something about it. So I'm cautiously optimistic um, about this legislation. And yeah, we'll just have to see where this goes. Thank you, Misa. Min, would you like to go next? I guess for me, I'm hopeful that this legislation will make... Um, a little bit of a difference, um, but I'm not so optimistic <laughs> um, not to take a negative view on this, but I, I just feel like our law enforcement system right now is not the most trustworthy um, when it comes to hate crimes against people of color, um, not taking them seriously, not uh, prosecuting them, basically not protecting the people that they are supposed to be protecting. And you know, implementation sometimes is haphazard and this hate crimes are happening to elderly people and they are already vulnerable because they are older and they may not know what their protections are, what their rights are. And they need this act is in place. But, you know, I'm thinking of my mom. Um, If something happened to her on the streets when she's out, she's not going to know what she can do. And that's what I think about all the time, like when she's driving or something like I, I have told her because she is prone to road rage, <laughs> um, stay calm because you don't know who's going to attack you because you're clearly an older Asian lady. And that's the kind of world that we live in where we have to caution our relatives and our loved ones to be careful as they move through the world. And that's really sad. I think stopping hate crimes, stopping Asian hate, any of these starts from the community, you know, doing things like this where we're talking about tough issues, raising awareness, building coalitions within our communities to protect one another. I think that's where we're going to see change happen first um, instead of some legislation that's coming down from the government that might not even do much in terms of stopping things. 
Thank you. Uh, Tyanne, any thoughts? I would hope that the legislation could get passed pretty quickly, but in hearing about other legislative issues and how many years it takes, well, then how many lives are going to be taken during that time? I live in Portland, Oregon, and I, before COVID, would go downtown because there was stuff that I did downtown. Well, I know that I'm not going to feel safe walking downtown anymore. And my husband asked me one day, well, is it because you're going to be afraid of the police or afraid of uh, getting attacked because you're Asian? And I go, well, you know, I have three things against me. Not only am I a female, I'm blind, and I'm Asian. So I'm just trying to figure out, well, how am I going to do things if they open back up that I want to do? I reached out to our advocacy, Clark Rockfeld, and you know, got a breakdown of the way the bill is written. And so the reason that I say I'm jumping on the rainbow is because the LGBTQ community, we, we don't, and are still, but, you know, the, the harder pieces of the fight were already won. Now it's just kind of holding on to the protections that we've won and, and hoping that uh, those on, on the far other side don't get their wishes. But we've had protections in place for a while. And the one thing that we've seen is with the hate crimes acts that were enacted for LGBTQ, reporting went up, talking about it went up, making it more visible, making it more a part of the, the national conversation, you know, led to more people coming out of, you know, of their hidden closet, so to speak, you know, when violence was perpetrated on them, when they were, mo- you know, when they were discriminated, when they were backed into those corners, um, you know, and the fruits of those, of those labors can be seen across, you know, across the nation. We have transgender acts of hate that are horrible, but it's spoken about 30 times more than it would have been spoken about 10, 15 years ago. So I will say that the bill, you know, as written is is very well done. You know, it sets up the local and state level um, legislators to to really have funding to have, you know, a set of guidelines to look at when when creating local and hopefully I think the biggest part of, you know, the API violence is the fact that people feel that it's more okay because they're marginalized and people feel more okay because they don't think that the likelihood of um, any kind of conviction or any kind of, you know, punishment to the crime will actually ever be enacted. And now that there's a, a template to look at, hopefully that will change and hopefully it will inspire the community from keeping silent or keeping quiet when things happen. But that is a very rainbow perspective from somebody that tries to, you know, drink with the glass always half full. Thanks, Anthony. So in lieu of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I want to end our conversation with a fun topic. How do you plan on celebrating your heritage this month? Uh, Miso? You know, honestly, the AAPI uh, Heritage Month, like, I don't really think of, I didn't really think about that a lot um, until like very recently being like Korean, it's an everyday occurrence. And of course, I do love celebrating um, our holidays and things like that. Um, But I do have a plan to make a kimchi meatloaf with one of my coworkers who are not Asian, um, but they really 
It sounds so good. Sounds so good. Well, yeah, we really just love the recipe. Trying, uh, yeah, different, uh, you know, recipes. So look forward to doing that this month. Awesome, babe. I wish I was in Boston. <laughs> I'm going to come visit Viso. <laughs> Save some for me. I will be vaccinated soon. So for me, um, I plan on eating a lot of food <laughs> as usual. You know, I don't really think about um, API heritage month either because i feel like every month is heritage month for me yes <laughs> yeah because <laughs> you're yeah we're living it and we we're living um our identity every day but you know like for tomorrow for mother's day um my sister is gonna make my mom ben sale which is this like vietnamese crepes some people call it vietnamese pizza but it's their crepes um, and they're amazing so you know for Every American holiday, we have Vietnamese food. Typically, <laughs> typically no, not awesome. for American like <laughs> traditional fare. Like for Thanksgiving, we don't really have turkey or ham or anything. But food is always essential for my heritage because I think that's like the best way for me to connect. But I also plan on watching some Vietnamese or Chinese dramas that have been translated into Vietnamese with my mom because I used to do that when I was younger and I haven't in about 10 years and I really want to like I hear her watching it and like that sounds really interesting I'm I'm gonna do that so that's gonna be my plan I love that Tayeb well I think I need to go uh figure out how Koreans celebrate because I don't know any of that currently but uh I think it's uh, kimchi time. (laughs) I love that too. That's fantastic. Um, Awesome. I am going to add my own piece in here. I'm going to celebrate with food. Min, I can really relate. Like every month is a celebration. Tomorrow is Mother's Day as of this recording anyway. Uh, So I'll be celebrating with my parents. And then I've also been doing a lot of reading to to really be knowledgeable about um, AAPI history and about um, stories, different stories along the way. So I'm really thankful that we had this conversation today and thankful to all of you for sharing your experiences and your thoughts. And I'm also super thankful to have VPI as, uh, providing us with a platform in order to share these voices. So thank you so, so much for joining us today. All right. Well, let me just throw my little cue in there. As the whitest of white boys um, and a gay boy, I promised a friend of mine that I would do a K-pop night where we're going to watch two or three different concerts or listen to. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's really celebrating API history, but I did a lot of reading going into this conversation. So I feel like I, I have learned more about Asian culture in America from just the last week than I ever did in high school or college. So Thank you guys for giving me the experience to expand my horizons. This has been Pride Connection. Sarah Chung, you rock. Minha, Miso, I'm sorry, I don't remember your last name. Miso Kwok. Thank you. And Tyan Wilmoth. Um, maybe we'll be back for another conversation in another month or two. You guys all rock. Thank you so much for being open, raw, honest, and vulnerable. Pride Connection will be back next week with another fabulous episode. And I've heard it too many times too. And 
You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers.